Father. My mother would say, I got food on my table. Lord, I know that you're able. I can't even. I can't even. I can't even. I can't even. Too many to count. I got miracles on Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. We are thin today, and I have feeling it's something to do with the weather and people traveling and whatever else. It was a little surprise snowstorm this morning. So the song we just played, um, this is a song by Elevation Worship and Maverick City combined. It's called uh, Million Little Miracles, and I have listened to this for a little while, and I was thinking over the Thanksgiving weekend, like, this is an appropriate song for right now. In between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and um, I don't know what you, I, I host Thanksgiving at my house, so I'm always, you know, making all the food, and it's a lot of work, and this Thanksgiving, it went off pretty flawlessly. I didn't have any culinary disasters, and everything was timed pretty well, and after everybody had left, I was laying on the couch that night, and kind of sitting there and thinking how this song and in those million little miracles he sings in there I have clothes on my back I have food on my table those are all just like those are miracles those are things that God blessed us with and in this time of thanksgiving where it just blends seamlessly into what we're thankful for which is Christ coming to save us here on earth so I, I wanted to share that song with you with um, just some reflection on the season that we're in and how grateful and thankful we should be for all of the things, all the little things. There's so many of them that we can count. So we're going to stand and worship now, starting with Great Things, which is along that theme as well. We'll pick up the pace here a little bit. Um, but just think about Thanksgiving as you're singing this morning. One, two, three, four.
seated. Well, good morning. Good to be with you here this morning on this, this first Sunday of Advent. Right? So we're just saying that God does great things in this season of Advent. It's our chance to remember that God not only does great things, but He did it's the greatest thing right? when He sent Jesus to come to earth and to live a sinless life on our behalf and ultimately to die in our place. It's good to be gathered with you here this morning on as we enter into this season of Advent. I know it's been probably for many of us a, a busy and a crazy week in terms of like we just got back from the Twin Cities last night, or I did, my wife's still there. Um, so I got back. Um, it's been, been a busy season, but it's a chance now this morning to come together, to gather together as God's people in God's presence and to worship Him and to praise Him. Um, and so I pray that our hearts this morning will be settled on bringing Him glory. So, a couple of announcements as we kind of go into this time of worship. One is next Sunday following the worship service. Um, we're going to have what we're calling pizza with the pastors. So Pastor Ian and myself will, after the Sunday school hour, be downstairs. We're going to serve pizza. Um, and just a, it's a chance for those of you who are maybe newer here to get to know us. Um, or if you just like feel like I've, I've been, I haven't been here that long, so if you just feel like you haven't got a chance to know me well, we invite you to come to that as well. Just a chance to kind of spend time together, talk a little bit about um, our hope and our vision for the church, and also just yeah, trying to get to know each other a little bit better. Um, so we just invite you to be part of that. If you do want to come to that, it'd be great if you can either sign up. There's a sign-up sheet outside of the office, just by the office window there, or you can email me. My email is in the bulletin, just so we kind of have an idea how many pizzas to, to make. If you could RFAP in some way, that would be helpful for us. On the back of your bulletin, you see a, a list of things that are, of events that are coming up this December as we kind of anticipate Christmas and, and walk through this Advent season together. So I'd invite you to look through those and um, consider which of those you want to be a part of. And then one of those things is December 12th, following the worship, or following the Sunday school hour, we will have a, a quarterly meeting. We'd invite you, especially those of you who are members, to make being here for that a, a priority. One other quick announcement, there's no, no Sunday school hour this morning coming out of the holiday weekend of people traveling. There's no Sunday school hour, so that includes cross training, so we'll head downstairs after the service, you can get coffee and fellowship together, but there'll be no full Sunday school hour um, this morning. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we come this morning as we walk into this Advent season, we prepare our heart to reflect in an extra-focused way on the coming of Jesus. Pray that you would quiet our minds, quiet our hearts. We would walk through this season over the next month just Be amazed anew at what an incredible, great thing it is that you sent Jesus. That even though we sinned, even though we rebelled against you, even though we were your enemies, you sent Jesus to come to earth to live a perfect life on our behalf, to die on our behalf. 
so that we can have a restored relationship with you. Now, would we be amazed at the glorious truth that is this morning and as we walk through Advent together? And even as we reflect on that glorious truth, we acknowledge that this is a hard season for some of us, whether it's because of physical pain or because of emotional pain or different trials that people in our congregation may be going through. I pray that you would be with them, that as we they reflect on Christmas and the coming of Jesus, that it would give us encouragement as we walk through hard times. The coming of Jesus would remind us that you have good and perfect plans even in the midst of pain and trial. Pray for people who are suffering this morning. Think of those affected by tragedy in Waukesha. Think of those around the world who are suffering because of being persecuted for your namesake that you would be at work in the midst of broken hearts to reveal your goodness and glory Father would you quiet our minds now and we come before you and sing and worship you as the good and glorious God that you are in Jesus name Amen all right, I invite you to stand and join in a set of worship with us. Um, I don't know about you, but I looked at the forecast this morning, like last night, I think, and it said occasional flurries. And then I got up this morning and came into worship practice, and it was like complete whiteout on the way in. So welcome to winter. Welcome to the Advent season and Christmas. So we're just going to start out with some worship this morning.
Father, would that be true? We give you all the glory. Would you be honored? We come to praise. We think about all you've done for us this Advent season. Would you be honored to be glorified? Would we bring you all the glory? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we enter into this Advent season, one of the ways we kind of mark the time is through the lighting of Advent candles. I'm going to invite Chase and Emma to come this morning and lead us in the lighting of our first Advent candle. Today marks the first Sunday of Advent, a season in which we prepare for celebrating the birth of Jesus by remembering the longing for the Jews of a Messiah. In Advent, we're reminded of how much we ourselves also need a Savior, and we look forward to our Savior's second coming, even as we prepare to celebrate his first coming at Christmas. In Jeremiah 33:14-16, God promises, The days are coming, declares the Lord when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. These verses look forward with hope to the day when God would send a Savior for his people. Today, as we enter the season of Advent and prepare our hearts for the coming of the Righteous Branch, we light the candle of hope. May it remind each of us of God's great promise to us. He is our hope. He is our Redeemer. And He is our Savior. Let's pray. Father, during this Advent season, may we be reminded of your promises to us and the hope we have in trusting in them. Help us to prepare our hearts and to celebrate the coming of your Son in a way that honors you. In your precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. start this morning as we enter into this Advent season. So I'll tell you a couple things about myself and how I thought about Advent when I was a kid especially. But to understand this, you need to understand a couple things about me. And the first thing you need to understand is that I really like getting presents. Right? Like, I just, I do like, like a few years ago, like Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages, was like all the rage. Right? And like he talked about how people receive and show love through five primary means, right? They're words of affirmation, there's acts of service, and there's quality time, and there's physical touch, and then there's receiving gifts. And for me, like, receiving gifts is high on the list. Right? It's not top. Like, for a long time, I, like, pretended that receiving gifts was not that high on the list. Right? Cause it just feels, like, shallow to be like, like, I'd rather receive a gift from you than spend time with you. If that doesn't sound very nice. Right? But, like, for me, it's a little bit true. 
Like, like I just like receiving gifts, big or small, like makes me feel loved. Right, the second thing you should know about me is that I'm really bad at delayed gratification. Like, like there's this famous experiment you may have heard of it called the marshmallow experiment, right? and like in this experiment, like research of the place a child in a room with a marshmallow in front of them, and they give them the choice. Like you can either eat this marshmallow right now. Or you can wait until the researcher comes back. And so the researcher would go away. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Until they could, they had a choice, right? They could either wait until, they could eat right away, or the researcher would go away and come back in like 15 minutes. And then if they waited until the researcher came back, they would get a second marshmallow. Right? And so they, they had a choice. Like either gratify themselves right away by eating the marshmallow first, or Delay gratification and get double the reward by getting two marshmallows. You get to wait like 15 minutes to get that second one. Right? If I had been in that experiment, I would have eaten that marshmallow in the first minute. Like, I would not have been able to wait 15 minutes for a second marshmallow. I'm just not good at delaying gratification. So that's two things about me. Right? I really like getting gifts, and I'm really bad at delayed gratification. Like I'm, really batting, I'm really bad at waiting to get stuff that I want. The third thing you need to know about me is that my birthday is the day after Christmas. Right? Now, like, I realize this sounds like a ruse to be like, to get you to get me birthday presents. Like, hey, I, I like gifts for my birthday, it's the day after Christmas. Right? But that's not, that's not the reason I'm telling you this. The reason I'm telling you this is because like, I just want you to imagine like, how agonizing this time of year was for me as a kid. And my birthday's the day after Christmas. Right? So the, like the, the two main times each year that you get presents, for me, are on back-to-back days. Which means I'm like, I've been waiting 364 days by the time Christmas gets here to get more gifts. And so as a kid, like, Christmas time was incredibly exciting for me because it meant both Christmas and my birthday. But also it meant that Advent was a torturous season for me. Like, I remember coming to church on this Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, and I'd see that first candle get lit, right? and that candle being lit would, would not fill me with anticipation like it should have. Right? Instead, I would just look at the unlit candle. I mean, like, feel like those candles were mocking me. Like, this is how much longer it's going to be until Christmas gets here. Like, will get to light, like, one candle each week? Like, that felt like forever for me when I was a kid. Like, it felt like Christmas was never going to get here. And so like, there were a lot of things that weren't great about that mindset, that attitude. Like, I definitely wasn't appreciating the overall value of the Advent season. I was just looking forward to the two days of the year that I get stuff. But that's not a great heart attitude. Right, but as I look back on that experience as a kid, like, it did do one thing for me that I think was really helpful. That is that, like, the Advent season gave me a very real sense of what it was like to wait for something with eager anticipation and longing. And, like, really, that's what Advent is all about, like, waiting for something with eager anticipation and longing. It's a season of anticipation, of waiting for the coming of the long-expected Messiah. Like, and really, we can think about the whole Bible... It's a book about waiting for two advents. 
The whole Old Testament is a book about waiting for God to send His Messiah the first time to come into the world. And the New Testament is first about God sending that Messiah. Right? But then the rest of the New Testament is about how to live as we wait for the second advent, right? the second coming of Jesus. And in fact, like you go back in church history and look at how they celebrated the Advent season. Many churches and throughout church history have spent the first two weeks of Advent focusing on the second coming of Jesus and then spending weeks three and four of Advent talking about his first coming. Like one of the challenges of reading and making sense of the Old Testament especially is how it often seems to compress these two Advents, these two comings of Jesus into one event. Certainly the Jews who are living in Jesus' day expected only one Advent, only one coming. They expected God's Messiah to come once and immediately usher in God's kingdom. And that would include like the day of judgment against God's enemies. They expected just one coming, one Advent. But God's plan for the future and God's plan for sending His Messiah like, was far grander than they could imagine. God's plan involved not just one, but two Advents. Like Jesus coming to earth twice. Once to inaugurate or to start the presence of God's kingdom, and then a second time to bring it to completion. And the result of all of that is that we, right now, we live in this unique time between the two Advents. It's a time that some theologians call the already and the not yet. In one sense, God's kingdom has already come. It came when Jesus was born to Mary and lived a sinless life and was crucified, buried, and resurrected. That's why in in Luke 17, we can read this. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Lo, here it is, or there for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Like, present tense, it is here now. And a couple of weeks ago, when you were going through Luke chapter 11, we read Jesus saying this. Jesus said, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is already here when Jesus is present. But in another sense, the kingdom of God is not here, not fully here yet. There are still ways that Satan has dominion and power in this world. There is still sin and suffering and sorrow at work in this world as reminders that God's kingdom is not yet fully here. Which is why when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he tells them to pray, Your kingdom come. And in Luke 19.11, we read this. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So in Luke 19, Jesus tells a whole parable to make clear that the kingdom of God was not going to appear immediately. So it's this weird tension. that The kingdom of God is both already here, and yet, in another sense, it's still coming. 
Like we live in that tension, in that already, in that not yet. And over the next several weeks as we walk through this Advent season, I just want us to take time to reflect on like, the tension that comes with living in that already and that not yet. Just to reflect on what it means to live between the two Advents. And so here's my plan. Over the next four weeks as we walk through the kind of formal Advent season, I want us to look at four passages from the Old Testament that focus and talk about how God's people in the Old Testament waited for the first coming of the Messiah. And then in the weeks after Christmas, I want to take several weeks to consider what the New Testament tells us about how we live our lives here and now as we wait for the second advent, the second coming of Jesus. And so, like I've called this series Waiting, and I've given it the subtitle, an Advent Sermon Series, but in reality, it's going to extend several weeks beyond the kind of traditional season of Advent. We'll do several weeks after Christmas in the New Testament. That's kind of where we're, where we're headed in the next several weeks. And so this morning, we kind of enter into the Advent season. Right? It's a season all about waiting for and reflecting on God sending His Son to be the Savior of the world. I want us to look back this morning on the very first hint we see in the Bible that God would one day send a Savior. And that hint is found way back in the very first pages of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. In the Bible, I invite you to turn there. Genesis 3, again, verses 14 and 15. And we read this. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Right, so in the, in the broader context, Genesis chapter 3 is all about Adam and Eve's fall into sin. They're, they're committing the very first sin in all of human history. Adam and Eve had just broken the one rule that God had given them, to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they were, they were deceived into doing that by Satan, who came to them in the form of a serpent. And as they ate that fruit, they, they broke the perfect relationship they had had with God. And their perfect home in the Garden of Eden was ruined forever. So now if you pick up the passage here, like God is going to tell them the consequences of their actions. He's going to give them the consequences of their sins. And just how to imagine like, what Adam and Eve must have been feeling in that moment. Like when you or I sin, like we know it's a big deal, or at least it should feel like a big deal to us. We should feel the weight of our sin. But it's really easy to not feel the full weight, right? Because it's just it's one more in a long list of sins we've committed in the past. Like, or our sin, like can feel like a, a minuscule drop in the bucket of all the sin we see in the world around us. It's like our sin doesn't always seem that bad. And so we can kind of brush it off. 
But for Adam and Eve, this sin was not just one more in a long list. Instead, like this sin fundamentally changed the way mankind related to God for all of human history. Their sin changed the world from a sinless place to a place of sin and darkness. Their, their sin changed them from friends of God into enemies of God. And so Adam and Eve, they stand before God as He comes to them and gives them the consequences, aware of the radical and fundamental change that their sin has caused. They can feel the full weight of their sin and they are aware that consequences are coming. And there certainly will be consequences. In verse 16, God will tell Eve, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And then in verses 17 through 19, God tells Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So there are certainly consequences for Adam and Eve's sin. They must face those consequences. And we're still dealing with those consequences today. But what I find really interesting about this passage is that when God calls all the involved parties together to explain the consequences of sin, He doesn't start with Adam and Eve. Instead, He starts with Satan. And the ultimate consequence that Satan faces for leading Adam and Eve into sin is that one day an offspring of the woman was going to crush his head. Again, verse 15 says, God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Just, like what... What a gift those words must have been to the ears of Adam and Eve. They screwed up. They know they screwed up bad. They had a very real sense that they had ruined everything. And now God shows up and He's going to tell them about the consequences of their sin. But before He gets to that, He starts with these words the word of grace, right? Words that say to Adam and Eve, yes, like, you messed up. But your messed up, your sin is not the end of the story. You will still have offspring. Life will go on. And one day, one of your offspring will destroy Satan. Your sin is not the last word. I, God, will still win. That's the message of verse 15. These are, such, these are such words of grace. Like words that say, like, I won't leave you to wallow in the effects of your sin forever. Words that say, like, even though you don't deserve it, I will send one who will rescue you 
from sin by crushing the serpent. Again, from those were done, like from the very beginning of Genesis chapter 3 on to the rest of the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament is about like, waiting for this serpent crusher to come. But the Old Testament traces thousands and thousands of years of history that people wait for this serpent crusher. And through those thousands and thousands of years, we see people constantly dealing with the consequences of the sin that Adam and Eve brought into the world. That the people of the Old Testament are constantly wandering away from God. They're constantly disobeying God because of their sin. And yet despite all that, God never forgets this promise He made way back in the beginning. A promise that one day He would send an offspring of the woman to defeat Satan. Right? And throughout the Old Testament, He gives these little reminders that His promise is not forgotten. That He's a little hint that He's in the process of keeping His promise. Like We don't have time to get into all of them this morning, but just in my favorite example of all of this, it's found in 1 Samuel 17. Like God sent this little reminder that he is still in the process of sending a serpent crusher. Right? So 1 Samuel 17 contains one of the more well-known stories in the Bible, the story of, of David and Goliath. So even if like, this is your first time this morning that you've ever stepped foot in a church, like, you're probably familiar with the details of the story of David and Goliath, at least like, the basic outline. Like, like, it's just part of our cultural language. Like, like every time like some small college beats a big college in a sporting event, right, the sportcaster will refer to it as a story of David beating Goliath. Right? Or every time some low-budget movie wins an Oscar, right, it's referred to as like, a, a story about David and Goliath. Like it's, it's become like a shorthand for the little guy beating the big guy. And, like many, many Children's Sunday school curriculums will use this story to tell children about you know, being brave by trusting God. But the thing is, like, that's not really what this story is fully about. Like I've said this before, so if you remember that, just bear with me. But it's one of my favorite rants, so just bear with me for a minute. Right. So in 1 Samuel 17.5, right, we're told that Goliath wore a helmet of bronze and a coat of mail armor. Which may not seem all that strange. Like it seems like kind of normal thing for a warrior to wear if he heads into battle. But you know two things about that description. Right? First, the Hebrew word for bronze is nihashet. And the Hebrew word for serpent is nehesh. And so they, they sound similar. And when Moses is in the wilderness and he had to make a serpent out of bronze like for the God people to look at and to be saved from their sins, he made literally a Nahashet Nahesh. These two words that sound familiar. And there's this link between these two words throughout the Old Testament, between bronze and serpent. Right, so Goliath is wearing a helmet of bronze, a helmet of Nahashet. And then he's also wearing a coat of mail. The thing is, like that word that's translated mail there, like, is in like ar- mail armor. Like it's usually in the Old Testament translated scales, then like the type of skin that a serpent has. 
So here, like here in the story of David and Goliath, we have a great enemy of God's people covered in scales, armor of scales, and with a helmet of Nahashet on his head. And all of God's people, like the entire army of Israel, is either too unwilling or unable to face this enemy. They're all too scared to go off and face him. And so instead of God's people teaming up to go defeat this great enemy, God is going to raise up one individual who will go head-to-head with this enemy. Who will go head-to-head with this enemy dressed as a serpent and face him down. As you know, like that one individual is David. You probably know, like David uses his slingshot and he flings the stone at Goliath's head and he defeats Goliath with a great victory for God's people. And if you only know like the children's Bible version of the story, it probably ends right there. God's enemy laying dead on the battlefield. But the Bible's depiction of that story is a little more grisly than even that. The Bible, the Bible proceeds to tell us that David cuts off Goliath's head with Goliath's own sword. And so if we could summarize the whole story of David and Goliath, like we could say that in the story we have like God raising up one individual to fight a battle that the rest of his people were unwilling or unable to fight against an enemy represented as a serpent. And that the individual that God raises up wins the battle by damaging the head of the serpent enemy. So the story of David and Goliath is more than a story about being brave as you face your enemies. The story of David and Goliath is a reminder to God's people that God had not forgotten his promise that he made way back in Genesis 3, that one day he would send an offspring of the woman to crush the serpent's head. The rest of the story of David makes clear that he is not the ultimate serpent crusher. He's not the ultimate the one to defeat Satan. That he was a sign that God had not forgotten his promise. So David wasn't the ultimate fulfillment, but he was a reminder that God had not forgotten this promise. So God's people waited after David for that ultimate serpent crusher to come. And David lived right around 1,000 B.C. Right? So that wait went on for 1,000 more years after David, with God reminding his people of his promise along the way. Until finally, Jesus comes. And through his sinless life, he fights a battle against Satan a battle against the temptations of Satan that Adam and Eve lost and that each of us has lost in our own lives. We all sin. We all give in to Satan's temptations. And each of us is unwilling and unable to defeat Satan in our own power. But God sent Jesus to stand in for all God's people to fight a battle that we were unwilling and unable to fight on our behalf. So Jesus is the serpent crusher promised way back in Genesis chapter 3. And that's why Christmas is so important. Jesus coming to earth, being born to Mary as a baby, is the start of the process of God undoing all the effects of sin that were brought into the world by, by Adam and Eve way back in Genesis 3. But the thing is, right, there's... There's thousands and thousands and thousands of years between Adam and Eve and the story of David and Goliath. 
And there's another thousand years between the time of David coming and or at the time of David and the time of Jesus coming. Like it's really easy to just like, oh yeah, it's a long time. But thousands of years of waiting. Being one of God's people. Like looking for him to fulfill his promises involves a lot of waiting. They can feel that God may be forgotten his promises if we wait for him. But God asking us to wait does not mean that God has forgotten his promises. Instead, like even as we wait, we have a, a confident hope that God keeps his promises. As we heard Chase and Emma say this morning when they lit that first candle, like the first Sunday of Advent is often associated with hope. And the thing about hope is that almost by definition, it involves waiting. When you hope for something, like you wait for it with eager anticipation and eager expectation. There's a quote from a guy named Brett McCracken about hope that I find really helpful. He says this, The essence of hope is not the downplaying, justifying, or avoidance of present pain and sorrow. Rather, hope is the expectation that as real as the pain is now, it will one day feel as foreign as our faintest memories. The sin of Adam and Eve brought real and present pain and sorrow into this world. And when God came and He spoke to them, He didn't downplay their sin. He didn't downplay the consequences of it. He didn't give them tips on how to avoid the pain and sorrow that their sin had brought in. Instead, God gave them a message of hope. A message that one day a serpent crusher would come. That when he comes, he would usher in a new reality that will make our present pain feel as foreign as our faintest memories. Well, that all sounds well and good, but I don't know about for you, but for me, like, it can be really hard like, to live this out. Like, when, I'm, when I'm confronted with present pain and sorrow, like, I want an immediate fix. Like, I want to feel better. I want to feel better like, right now. Like I said at the beginning, like, I'm really bad at delayed gratification. Like, like, I want to be fixed now. Which is why I think reading the Old Testament in particular is so important. Reading the Old Testament teaches us a lot about how to wait on God. How to have patience that as we wait, God is still in the process of keeping His promises. The Old Testament covers thousands and thousands of years of history. And the whole time, the people are waiting for God to keep His promise by sending His Messiah. It's a long time to wait. But at Christmas, like we celebrate that God, even in the midst of that waiting, didn't forget His promises. And now on this side of the cross, we've been, been waiting 2,000 years for the second Advent, for the second coming. And for Jesus to come back and put an end to all our suffering and pain and bring His kingdom to completion. But as we wait, as we walk through seasons of pain and suffering, 
the invitation of the Bible is to wait, not wringing our hands, hoping God comes through someday, but to wait with a confident hope that God will keep his promises at the right time. Paul sums this up so well in Romans chapter 8. He says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This is Paul. Right? If you know anything about Paul's story and all that he endured, like you know that his sufferings were far greater than probably what most of us will go through in this lifetime. Right? Beaten, shipwrecked numerous times. Like he went through all kinds of sufferings. He says his sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed when Jesus returns. But then he goes on to say, in that same passage, like, that we're not the only ones waiting for Jesus to come back. He says this, he says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was sub- subjugated to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjugated it. In hope, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The Paul said that all of creation is waiting, is groaning under the weight of our sin. And it's waiting with the eager expectation, with the hope for Jesus' return. That all of creation waits for that Jesus to return. But the question then becomes like, as we walk through pain and suffering, why does God have us wait? Why doesn't Jesus just return now? In the book of Revelation, we even see the saints in heaven asking God that question, like, how long, O oh Lord, how long until you send Jesus back and undo all this pain and suffering? Like, while we can never fully know the mind of God and know fully why he's asking us to wait, he gives us some indication in Second Peter. Second Peter, we read this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some have understood slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So part of God's reason for waiting is that God is patiently waiting for more people to turn to him in repentance. Because when Jesus does return, when Jesus' second advent does come, there will be no more time. Like everyone who has not trusted in Jesus, everyone who has not turned to Jesus in repentance, will be judged for their sin. And so if you're, you're here this morning, that's you, you've never trusted in Jesus, you've never turned to Jesus, you've been trying to live this life in your own power, by your own obedience, like what we learn in Genesis chapter 3 at the very beginning is that none of us can be good enough to earn God's favor. None of us can earn our way into heaven. Jesus did what none of us could do. He lived the perfect, sinless life none of us could live. That when we believe in Him, when we trust in Him, He, God treats us as if we live that sinless life. You're here this morning. You've never trusted Jesus. I invite you to do that. That's your only hope. That's why we gather here. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Because Jesus 
give us a great gift of hope for eternal life. And for those of us who are here this morning who have trusted in Jesus, like I know the waiting can be hard. Like I don't know what each of you is going through this morning, but some of you are likely going through seasons of pain and sorrow that feel like they will never end. It may feel this morning like God has forgotten you. It may feel like God has forgotten to keep His promises, that God has written you off. I'll just say that like Advent is an invitation to renew your hope. Right? To remind yourself that yes, trusting in God does involve waiting. Right? But it is not an unsure waiting. That the waiting we do is we wait for God to keep His promises. The waiting was a confident hope. A confident hope that God has not forgotten His people. God has not forgotten you. God has not turned His back on your pain and suffering. The invitation of Advent is an invitation to trust and believe with a confident hope that one day there will be a second Advent. That Jesus will come a second time. And when that day comes, our present sufferings will not be worth comparing to the glory that is revealed. That as real as the pain is now, it will one day feel as foreign as our faintest memories. As you walk through trials and pain and hardship now, as you wait on God, let your waiting be done with an eager expectation that He will keep His promises. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the entirety of your word and the way it shows us that even over long, long, long time spans, you always keep your promises. It may be hard to see on a day-to-day basis, but you give us the ability to zoom out by looking at your word to see how you're keeping your promises over the long scale. And as we live our lives, it's just a tiny little portion of that timeline. You give us eyes to see the bigger picture. Give us eyes to trust, heart to trust that you are at work to keep your promises. As we walk through pain and suffering, you would help us to trust and believe that there is coming a day when there will be a second advent, a second coming. When that day comes, all our pain, all our suffering will be as a faint memory. We will... Rejoice in glory forever with you. Help us to wait for that day with an eager hope. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a reminder, in case you weren't here for announcements, there is no Sunday school hour this morning. It's a holiday. But we're going to you to come down there, have some coffee and food with us, and then we'll depart from there. So as we go, would you go waiting with an eager hope that one day Jesus will come again 
and make all things right. You are dismissed. One, two, three, four.